you can open up your scriptures to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Richard Wurmbrand was a Lutheran pastor in Romania when Soviet troops entered the country in 1944. During that takeover, religious leaders were given the choice of promoting communism or risk being imprisoned. To avoid prison and to show their loyalty, many church leaders praised communism. To help persuade Romanians, their messages were broadcast to the whole nation. But a God-fearing man like Wurmbrand wouldn't stand for such blasphemy, and he courageously addressed the delegates by letting them know they need to glorify Christ, not the Communist Party. This obviously created problems for him, and when he and his congregation were forced out of their church building, they began to meet secretly in his home. When Bibles were banned, his congregation disguised portions of Scripture as communist propaganda. Because Soviet soldiers were everywhere and Richard spoke fluent Russian, he could easily communicate to them about Christ. He even went to their barracks and shared the gospel. And because of his efforts, many came to Christ. Eventually, in 1948, Richard Wurmbrand was arrested for, quote, preaching ideas contrary to communist doctrine. He was arrested and for 14 years he was in a 
communist prison where he suffered terribly for his faith. Three of those years were spent in solitary confinement where he was given little food and more than once he nearly died from starvation. His wife Sabina was also put in prison, sentenced to hard labor where she was repeatedly told that her husband had died. In his book, Tortured for Christ, Wurmbrand tells the story of how every morning starting at 5 a.m., all the Christians would shuffle into a room and they would be forced to sit upright in a chair and endure 17 hours of indoctrination. Loudspeakers throughout the prison repeated the same phrases over and over. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. No one believes in Christ anymore. Only fools believe in Christ. Hour after hour after hour. And this kind of psychological warfare was only part of their misery. Those who were faithful to stand for the Gospel suffered at the hands of these men day and night and received beatings and experienced isolation and starvation and torture. And they all could have been freed upon one condition. Deny Christ and submit to the Communist Party. That's all they had to do. And sadly, some did just that. Perhaps they reasoned that it was not God's will that they suffer in such a way. I mean, can you imagine the, the weight of temptation that would be upon you if you are isolated in that way and you don't have food and water and relationship and sunshine and all the rest. I imagine those temptations begin to come. And you think, well, if we do have the truth of God and God really loves us and He's promised love and faithfulness to us, then it couldn't also be true that He would have us endure this kind of evil. I imagine that was a very reasonable thought to these men who suffered. If they were God's children, would He really want this for them? And yet we know from Scripture that the sign that one belongs to God is not freedom from suffering. The sign that we are children of God is not perfect health. It's not the absence of pain. It's not the admiration of the world. Just because Christians are those bought by Christ and we have been reconciled to God does not mean we will live lives of relative ease and safety. In fact, time and time again we discover in God's Word that suffering, and more specifically persecution, is actually God's blueprint for building His church. God not only uses trials and tribulations to conform His people to the image of Christ, but He uses persecution in the aid of spreading the Gospel globally. Jesus said it would be this way, and we are not to be surprised when it happens. 
Now we are in the midst of a mini-series here in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21, entitled The End of Jerusalem and Beyond. We've been looking at one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible, Luke chapter 21. And it's controversial because not only does Jesus describe the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70, but the events described foreshadow the great and final judgment at the end of the age. And the challenge becomes how to interpret these events that are thousands of years apart and yet found in a singular teaching. Which parts would be fulfilled in the near? Meaning, what is Jesus specifically talking about with the destruction of the temple? And which parts does Jesus describe the far, meaning pertaining only to the end of the age? And scholars are not in agreement where that division is made. I think it makes much more sense to see it as a both-and rather than an either-or. And so I interpret this chapter as Jesus describing the destruction of the temple, and yet, at the same time, he's also describing those events at the end of the age. In other words, what happens in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a microcosm of the final day of judgment at the end of the world. The way I have encouraged you to consider this chapter is like wearing bifocal lenses. We want to see the near and keep that always in focus, meaning how was this understood in the first century to that first century audience? And yet, we also need to see the far and see how this relates to future events. And I think if you do not keep both of those in view, you are going to read this chapter and most likely fall into some kind of error. So the first sermon we did on this was an introduction, and I wanted to give you certain principles as you think about this chapter that you can apply in interpreting it. And I encourage you, if you were not here for that, to find that sermon on the website. And since I already talked about, I reviewed this last week, I don't plan to do it again right now. And then last week I pointed out that Jesus, when he answers their question about when the temple was going to be destroyed, because that's how the whole chapter is framed, Jesus does not answer the question right away. They say, Lord, when are these things going to happen? And instead of going right into details concerning those events, he gives them some preliminary warnings. The first warning we saw last week in verse 8 is, do not be led astray. There are going to be false Christs who come and try to lead you astray. There would be false messiahs and... This is what Jesus warns them about first and foremost before anything else. He wants to make sure that they guard themselves because false teachers would come, false messiahs would come, they would claim they are the Christ or that they are representing Christ and through lying words, the disciples could be misled. He also said these false teachers have a fascination with the end of the world, and so they would claim the time is at hand. 
And these would be date setters, and they would gather people to follow after them and their end of the world speculations. And so he says, do not go after those types. Then we saw there was a second warning he gave to them in verses 9 through 11 do not be falsely alarmed. In an age of many calamities, both natural and man-made, the tendency is to be greatly troubled by world events. And he mentions wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilences. And Jesus says all these things must come, but the end is not yet. In other words, those things are signs of the times, not signs of the end. So he says, when you see these things, don't be afraid. This is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. But don't worry, don't be anxious, the end is not yet. And we saw in Matthew and Mark, he calls those birth pains. Now birth pains are not the same thing as the birth. They are things that precede it. And in the same way, events like wars and earthquakes and all the rest do not indicate the end is here, but those are preliminary events that define this age that we live in, and those birth pains can, can, can persist for a very long time, even 2,000 years. So they are not to be troubled when they read the newspaper headlines, which we all know can be very frightening. Picking back up in verse 12, which is our text today, the warnings continue. He still has not answered the question about when these things are going to happen, but he continues to tell them what's coming first. And the third point of these preliminary warnings is do not resist. Do not resist. So we have do not be led astray, do not be falsely alarmed, do not resist. Reading from verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So the first thing I want you to notice about this text is there is a time marker here that Jesus attaches to this next warning. And beginning in verse 12, he tells them, but before all this... And you, as a good Bible student, immediately ask the question, before all what? And obviously, the all this has to refer back to what he just said, which is verses 8 through 11. So he says, before all this, false Christs, wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. So Jesus warns them that right away, after His departure, they're going to suffer persecution. Now remember, this is Passover week. 
Jesus is about 30 hours away from being betrayed and arrested and scourged and humiliated and crucified. And then three days later, resurrected. And then after that, 40 days appearing to his disciples until his ascension into heaven. And then immediately following that is what Jesus describes here. In other words, what Jesus warns them of here is going to take place some weeks from this teaching. A matter of weeks. What is it will happen? Well, he describes various things. None of them sound particularly promising. He says they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to synagogues. They will send you to prison. They will bring you before both religious and civil authorities. And of course, the they are those who are hostile to the message. The disciples are going to go out and preach Christ, and you're going to have opposition from both Jew and Gentile, and they make up the they. So the disciples, Jesus warns, would be pursued. They would be rounded up. They would be arrested. And they would face widespread opposition because of their testimony of Jesus. And rather than this being a warning of something that they are to avoid, like false teachers and date setters, this is something they ought not to resist. Rather than this being framed as a great tragedy from which they should run, Jesus implies that this is the will of God. Now, from a human standpoint, what happens to the disciples looks a lot like losing. But from heaven's perspective, this is how the church is going to be built. Notice what he says in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. When all of these things happen, you're arrested, you're beaten, you're handed over, you're before the courts, this is your opportunity. Now, what does the word opportunity make you think of? I looked up in a thesaurus this week. What are other words for opportunity? Because opportunity sounds pretty positive to me. Here's the other words. Chance. Now's your chance. Occasion. Favorable time. Right set of circumstances. And you and I use this word very positively. Hey, I had the opportunity to meet my favorite author at the book signing. Or, hey, I had the opportunity to visit the Grand Canyon on our vacation. Or, receiving that scholarship gave me the opportunity I needed to become a, a doctor, which has always been my dream. But how often might one say, I had the opportunity to be beaten up and arrested and thrown into prison and dragged before the courts so that I could witness for Jesus. But that's what he's saying here. I titled this point, Don't Resist, even though Jesus doesn't say that. It goes along with my alliteration if you had not noticed. 
But I think it's strongly implied because Jesus says you're going to be handed over and they're going to do this to you and this to you and this to you, but God has a purpose for it. And all of this is an opportunity God is going to give you to testify for Jesus. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't resist this. This is God setting you up on a platform to preach Christ. Jesus doesn't tell them to skip town. He doesn't tell them to run away. He doesn't tell them to gather together and gather their weapons and mount a revolution. He tells them to testify. Why? Because this is God's plan for spreading the Gospel among the nations. They are called to preach Christ, not resist arrest, not go into hiding, not go and live into some secluded area like a monastery. They were to preach, and preaching would get them into trouble, and their trouble would lead them to certain high places, and that would lead them to places they would never have opportunity to go otherwise. And that's the point. God's going to use their persecution to open doors for the sake of the gospel. How else might one preach the gospel before the Jewish Sanhedrin, for example? Is the Jewish Sanhedrin going to invite these, this group of Christians to come and share their views about the Messiah? How about governments? Are secular authorities going to invite Christians in to tell them their story? No, but they will have an opportunity when they're on trial. When they're standing before a judge and he asks, them, asks that Christian to explain himself or herself, there's your chance. And so in the wisdom of God, the way he gets his message to the highest authorities in every place, whether secular or religious, is through persecution. This is how God opens those doors. And we see this throughout Luke's second book of the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles. These things played out on every page just as Jesus described them. And if you've read through Acts, you will remember this, but I'll just give you a few examples. Just a sampling of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 3 and they, that's the religious leaders, arrested them, that is Peter and John, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was evening. Verse 5, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, these are highfalutin officials, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So if you've read what came before this, 
Peter and John healed a man at the temple and they drew a big crowd and they preached the gospel and the religious leaders did not like that and they threw them into prison where they spent the night and then they brought them before the most important men in Jewish society and they say to them, give us an answer for why you're doing all these things. There's your opportunity. Acts chapter 6, verse 12. And they, this is the leaders of the synagogue, stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, which is Stephen, and seized him and brought him before the council. Here's your opportunity. And then the majority of this book of Acts is about Paul and all the opportunities Paul has. Acts 18.12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Opportunity. Acts 24.1, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. This is before Felix, a Roman official. Acts 25.8, a different scene. This is before Festus, another official. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And guess what Paul does? He preaches the gospel. Acts 26.1, another official. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And guess what Paul did? He preached Christ. And really, the entire book of Acts is like the unfolding of how the words of Jesus in Luke 21 all came true. We don't have to look in history at all. I mean, it happened in history, but you could just read the book of Acts. So the whole book is about the early church and its growth. And how did it grow? It grew through persecution. Now someone might think that is a strange way for God to build a church. I mean, He's God. Can't He just do it another way? Couldn't He just make us so winsome and our message so attractive that people's hearts are warmed to it and we don't have to suffer and we can be comfortable and people are coming to Christ and everyone's happy. But you must recognize that the world opposes the truth. We live in a fallen world. It is broken because of sin. That's how the whole story uh, unfolds. And because we are light bearers in a dark place, wherever in the world it is, there's going to be opposition. But the wisdom of God is that He even uses man's hatred of the truth to do His work. God even uses man's sin and his opposition to the gospel 
to actually spread the gospel. Now notice, going back to Luke 21, God not only promises His disciples persecution, but He promises them power. 21.13, He says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus tells them when they go and stand and speak in those places that He has ordained that they go and speak, He is going to give them words and they do not have to think about or practice what it is they're going to say. These otherwise weak and frail men and women, who are standing before people of power and prominence, will be so emboldened by the truth that Jesus is going to be speaking through them and they don't have to be rehearsing in their prison cell how this is all going to go down. And they don't have to build a defense for themselves. They're going to stand before kings and governors, and various leaders, both civil and religious, and Jesus Himself is going to give them what they need in that moment. And we also see this taking place in the book of Acts. Consider the first martyr, Stephen. Read Acts chapter 7. Very long chapter in the book of Acts. We're told in the previous chapter he is a righteous man, The scribes and elders bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. They make false accusations against him, saying that he speaks against the law and the temple. Does that sound familiar? And they want to know what he has to say for himself. And this is his opportunity. Acts 6.15, which is the last verse of chapter chapter 6, And gazing at him, at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And I'm just going to give you the beginning and the end here. But in between, Stephen has this long diatribe and he recounts the entire history of Israel. He recounts and and, and he... uh, spits out all of this Scripture. He's citing all of this Scripture, showing them, proving to them from the Scriptures that they always do this. They always reject the Spirit of God. And this is the conclusion to his diatribe as he speaks. Acts 7.51 You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And of course, their response to this is stoning him to death. 
But who does he sound like here? He sounds like Jesus, doesn't he? I mean, isn't this Jesus before the religious leaders once again? I mean, read through Matthew 25 when Jesus condemns the religious leaders. I mean, this is, this is the mouth that Jesus is talking about. I mean, I th- Stephen, he was probably just like you and me. He knows some Bible and he has the same kinds of fears and he's probably anxious about things and they arrest him and he feels this is unjust and they drag him before this court and Jesus Christ is speaking through his servant Stephen. I mean, at the end of that whole thing, he must have just been blown away in the 30 seconds he had before they killed him. Jesus said, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Or how about the Apostle Paul? Paul was before all kinds of governors and councils. And here's one before Felix I alluded to earlier. <clears throat> Acts 24.24 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So here's Paul preaching before this Roman uh, authority, and he's preaching the gospel to him. It says... Felix heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. What do you think that entailed? The gospel. He spoke to him about self-control and righteousness and judgment. It's all gospel. And how could it be done otherwise? Sometime later, he stands before King Agrippa. Agrippa was the great grandson of Herod the Great. So here's another uh, this, he, he's an Idumean. He's not really a Jew, but he sits on the throne as a Jew in Jerusalem. And he preaches Christ before him. And then uh, Agrippa responds this way in verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Paul is using that opportunity to preach the gospel because this is what Jesus has given him. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Agrippa probably had all kinds of higher-ups with him. So Paul is preaching to all of these people. So just as Jesus said, synagogues and prisons, kings and governors, there was persecution in the first century and there is persecution today. In fact, what we see in the book of Acts is a microcosm of what happens throughout the world for the last 2,000 years. 
Christians are the most persecuted group in history. It's not always recognized because sometimes those who are doing the persecution are perceived as being Christians. For example, the Roman Catholic Church, who dominated the Middle Ages for a thousand years, they were the primary persecutors of the true church. They silenced anyone who spoke or spread the true gospel. Then, of course, you have the rise of Islam in the 7th century, and that continues all the way to today, where you have Muslims being responsible for more persecution of Christians than any other group in, in, in our world, including secular governments. This is not disputed. Christians being killed at the hands of Muslims. There are many places all over the world this is taking place. If you follow the ministry, The Voice of the Martyrs, which was begun by Richard Vermbrand, who I mentioned earlier, you will see how often churches are destroyed and Christian peoples are misplaced or, and, and, and countless other, others are killed because of their testimony, because they will not convert to Islam. Even the secular press picks up on this once in a while. USA Today had a headline some time ago that covered the um, widespread slaughters in Sudan, one nation in the world, 1.2 million Christians killed in Sudan over a 10-year period. There are parts of the Middle East, there are other Arab countries in North Africa where Christians are regularly killed for their faith. According to Open Doors, which is a ministry to persecuted the persecuted church in 2018 over 245 million christians uh, live where there are high levels of persecution a report published this year by the u.s commission on international religious freedom found that christians in burma the central african republic china Eritrea, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, Vietnam, and several other places face the highest levels of persecution. And the commissioner of that organization concluded by saying Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. There's a pastor I support in Pakistan. He is not only a Christian, but he's a Christian like we are. So he is a, he's reformed in his um, doctrine. He preaches the true gospel. He believes um, the solas. He loves the reformers. And he occasionally sends me articles of what's going on in, in Pakistan. And there are pastors who are regularly killed there for not converting to Islam. Churches burn down regularly. And a government that looks the other way and does not pay much attention. In recent news, something he sent me, a pastor in Jaranwala reported in a terrorist campaign that 35 to 40 churches had been vandalized and torched. More than 200 Christian homes were attacked. And this is his life in Pakistan. He wears a big cross Whenever I see pictures of him, he's got a collar, he wears a big old cross. And I'm just thinking, man. 
If you want to support him, contact me. He needs support. There's I and a few other guys that support him. Um, I can give you his information. Now, we cannot relate to this very much in America. I know when I think about this or talk about this, I feel like I cannot relate to this much at all. And I feel guilty sometimes because they are very persecuted in various parts and I am not very persecuted in the place in the world I live. And yet I can thank God that I'm not suffering that way today. But I also recognize that when the people of God are persecuted, there is a, a, an uncommon zeal that fills those people who are suffering in that way. And there is an uncommon commitment to the Gospel that is rarely seen in places where there is safety and laws protecting us. And if the freedoms we presently enjoy were to end today, I could know with great confidence that God would turn that kind of opposition into opportunity. Jesus says to His disciples, don't resist. God is at work. Now I could tell some of you are getting nervous. You're like, man, that was a long point. And He said there's another point. This one's short. Fear not, little flock. Because persecution is such an intense kind of trial, Jesus also warns them, don't give up. Do not be led astray. Do not be falsely alarmed. Do not resist. Do not give up. Verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now it's one thing to be hated and handed over to the authorities by hostile mobs, but it's a lot harder and it's much more painful when it's people that you know and trust. The Jews in the first century had a very uphill battle that they were facing because not only were they walking away from the world to follow Jesus, but most had to walk away from a religious tradition that was very much a part of their identity. Jews who came to Christ would do so knowing that they would be cut off from their friends and family. They would be cut off from the synagogue. They would be cut off from all of the holidays and feasts. They would be cut off from family gatherings. They would be cut off from being a Jew. In fact, oftentimes the families would hold a funeral for the person who became a Christian because they, it was just as if the person had died. They had died to them. And in some cases, these were the same people who would turn their relatives and friends over to those authorities. Now, this was a real concern for Jewish Christians in the first century especially. The Jewish people were the primary group that persecuted Christians in the early church. They were the primary group. It wasn't secular authorities. It wasn't the Roman government. It wasn't Gentile idolaters. You read through Acts, yes, they get into trouble with all of those kinds of people, 
But historically, it was the Jewish people who were the greatest persecutors of early Christians. And the temptation would be that when your family turns away from you, that you will turn away from Christ. That had to be a very real temptation. In fact, there's an entire book in the New Testament written to address this very issue. Who can tell me what that book is? No, good guess though. Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews is written to address Jews who are tempted to turn back to Judaism. And so there's two main themes of that book. Jesus is better and don't turn back. And he goes through all of these Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than Joshua. He provides a better Sabbath. He's a better high priest. And so forth. And he keeps reinforcing the fact that all those Old Testament ideas were a shadow that was fulfilled in Jesus. This is why Hebrews has some of the strongest warnings in the Bible about turning away. You read those Warnings in Hebrews, and it makes you nervous. You're like, oh no, does this mean I could lose my salvation? No, he's talking about those who want to turn back to Judaism to protect themselves, to get their family back, to get their reputation back. And he says, don't do it. That tells us also that Hebrews was written prior to the destruction of the temple, Because the emphasis of the letter is not to turn back to those religious activities like the temple and the synagogue. But if the temple had been destroyed already, the writer would just say, look, God has already judged them. There's nothing to turn back to. You have to stay with Christ. But the warning here is don't give up. Some of the ones Jesus was speaking to in this first century audience were disciples that he loved and he ministered to and they were going to die. Now he says something very interesting here that seems contradictory. He says they will experience persecution, but they will also experience protection. Look at verse 16. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. And then in verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, is that a contradiction? Some of them did, were put to death. We know many of them. Stephen, James, Andrew, Peter, Paul. But how could Jesus say at the same time that not a head of their not a hair of their head would perish? Well, I think what Jesus means here is an expression that's meant to say, in the ultimate sense, you are completely and perfectly protected. In the most important sense, they will be unharmed. They may be thrown in prison. They may be beaten, they may even be killed, but as far as their true self, 
the one that lives forever, the one that belongs to God, they will not be harmed. Paul says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer to all of that, of course, is no. None of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. So while Jesus warns them of this suffering that is to come, He promises that He will guard them and He will keep them all the way to the end. But they must endure. They must not give up. In closing, um, I mentioned earlier that God has designed our persecution for the spreading of the gospel, right? And it's remarkable to see what God has done through that kind of persecution, not only in the Bible, but in church history. And I'll just conclude where I began. While many of those men in that communist prison took the easy way out, Richard Vermbrand endured for 14 years. He endured. Jesus says, don't give up. He didn't give up. And he endured unspeakable torment. And after he endured, he was released, and the Lord raised him up to shine a light on the persecution of Christians by communist governments. And his testimony was used to awaken the Western world to the evils of communism. And wouldn't you know it, Vermbrand used those opportunities to preach the gospel. And in his book, Tortured for Christ, which has been translated into 60 languages and sold a staggering 10 million copies, God has used that book through that man's suffering to bring many people to Himself. Often in places that could not be reached otherwise. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, that even though things look very bleak, even though Many brothers and sisters in China today are suffering. They are being followed. They are losing their homes. They are losing their jobs. They are gathering underground. And it looks a lot like losing. Oh, Father, may they be encouraged. May You grant them Your Word that they might be encouraged that it's not losing. That they're winning that they have the victory in Jesus, that they will triumph in the end. And I pray that they don't give up. And I pray that they endure until the end. And I pray Your richest blessings upon them. And that we in the American church would not forget them. Those who suffer in various parts of the world, for Your name's sake, may we not forget them. In Jesus' name, Amen.